uh, kids, three through kindergarten, can be go down to children's church at this time. I was mowing yesterday, and I, I can feel it right in here. You know, the nose, the mouth. The <clears throat> okay, so I was doing that all through the worship. I'm like, I'm going to sing whether, I, whether stuff comes up or not. I'm going to sing. That's a great image, right? I'm going to sing. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, the Liberty Bell. A lot of you learned about the Liberty Bell when you were in grade school. It was commissioned in 1751 to celebrate the 50th anniversary of William Penn's 1701 Charter of Privileges. That was Pennsylvania's original constitution, which highlighted a lot of the freedoms that people in America and all throughout the world should be able to enjoy. That's why they made the bell. Uh, Legend and tradition grew up around the bell. Uh, One of the things that happened was in 1847, a man named George Lippard wrote a fictional story for the Saturday Courier. In that story, he said that in July of 1776, uh, a day and month that you should be familiar with, in 1776, he says that when uh, Congress was meeting and coming up with the Declaration of Independence, there was a bellman, an elderly bellman, who who was by the Liberty Bell, and he was waiting to hear if Congress would in fact declare this, uh, uh, this independence, our own nation. And so uh, he was waiting and he had his doubts and he was kind of torn inside, like, were they really going to do it? Were they really going to be brave enough to say this? And uh, again, the story goes that the bellman had a grandson who was spying on Congress. He was eavesdropping, okay? And, and, and he saw that they had done this, that they had en- en- enacted the Declaration of Independence. And, and the grandson runs down to the grandfather and he says, Ring the bell, grandfather, ring the bell. And so he starts ringing the bell. And uh, that celebrated our independence. Now, that story is, uh, that, that came out of a fictional account, okay, many years later. But because of that story, the Liberty Bell got connected with the Declaration of Independence. It kind of got associated with that. And uh, again, other people believe that four days later on July 8th, 1776, when the declaration was publicly read to the nation, that they rang bells. I mean, that's historical. Bells were rung that day, but uh, tradition has it that the Liberty Bell was rung that day as well. Modern historians doubt that. Uh, They think the bell was in uh, not good repair at the time, so it couldn't have been rung We probably don't know exactly if it was or not, but the bell was associated with liberty and freedom. After the Civil War, abolitionists, people that proposed and and, and desired and worked for the abolition of slavery, adopted the bell as a symbol of freedom and liberty for all. Now that's very appropriate because I don't know if you know what is inscribed on the bell itself, but Leviticus chapter 25 says, Verse 10 is inscribed on the bell. This is what it says. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Leviticus 25, verse 10. I'd like us to look at that passage. Would you turn to Leviticus chapter 25? A very appropriate scripture for the Liberty Bell and a good scripture to take a look at to understand what that is talking about. 
If you like taking notes, you'll have notes in your bulletin. You can pull those out and follow along that way, or you can follow along also on the uh, projector image here. Leviticus. So if you're uh, new to the Bible, it's Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus, third book over. Leviticus chapter 25, and we're going to start in verse 8. This morning we're talking about the year of Jubilee. I've always wanted to sing that song, you know, uh, Days of Elijah. You know, it's the year of Jubilee. And then preach about I've always wanted to do that. Preach about Jubilee and sing about it. Because usually we sing that song, and I don't know if we all know like how important Jubilee is, but, but there it is. And, and, and let's talk about it this morning, all right? So this is Leviticus 25, verse 8. Uh, it says, Count off seven Sabbaths of years, seven times seven years, so that the seventh Sabbaths of years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have a trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the Day of Atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each one of you is to return to his family property and each to his own clan. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee to you. Do not sow or do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it's a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to his own property. If you sell land to one of your countrymen or buy any from him, don't take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your countrymen on the basis of the number of years since the jubilee. And he is to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. When the years are many, you are to increase the price. When the years are few, you are to decrease the price. Because what he's really selling you is the number of crops. Don't take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord, your God. Okay, we'll stop there for a minute. Now, what it's saying is that every 50 years, let's back up. Every seven years, there's going to be a Sabbath year. Where, where the people of Israel weren't supposed to plant and, and harvest crops. Okay, So that's a Sabbath year. The ground was to lie fallow and, and leave it alone. And then every seven times that, 49 years, on the 50th year, you were to have a special Sabbath. A special Sabbath year called the Jubilee year. Now, Jubilee, I used to think, was like jumping and dancing and celebrating and raise your hands. Jubilee, right? But it doesn't mean that. The word is Yovel. And the word Yovel, Jubilee, means ram's horn. It means ram's horn. Kurt, can I have you come up with your shofar? Thank you. The sermon might be boring, but this will not be boring. This will not be boring. All right. Now, this is a shofar. And I, I just wanted uh, Kurt to play this because what they would do is on the Day of Atonement, on the 50th year, the Day of Atonement was when the high priest would come out, they, they'd sacrifice the goat, and that would, that would be a, as a symbol of covering the sins of the people. And then they'd send another goat into the wilderness, and that would signify that your sins have left. Okay, so, so you are covered, you're free from sin, you're good. Now, uh, Jubilee would not start until the horn was blown. Now, uh, we haven't rehearsed this or anything, so you could do what you want with it, but, but show us a little bit of what that sounds like, okay? Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you. That's pretty fun. That's pretty fun. Um, love that. They would sound the ram's horn to signify that Jubilee was here. And they do it on the Day of Atonement. The day when your sins, symbolically that is, are covered. You're forgiven. Let's celebrate Jubilee. It's year 50. Let's do this. So um, what I want to do then is talk about some of the, what was Jubilee about? What was, what was going on there? So here's what let's do. You have a description of Jubilee in your, uh, on the notes in front of you. Let's highlight a couple things here. On the year of Jubilee, the land was not farmed. You notice that. Don't farm the land. Now, later in the chapter, the, the, God is, is speaking to the Israelites, and he's like, you know, it's kind of like, I know some of you are going to say, how are we going to eat if we don't farm the land? And, it, and if year 49 is a Sabbath year and we're not farming the land, okay, that year 49, no farming. Year 50, no farming. Year 51, we're planting. How are we going to eat for three years? What's going to happen? And God says, no, no, I'm going to bless you so much in year 48 that it won't be a big deal. It really won't be a big deal. Trust me on this. So the land was not farmed. Uh, B, Hebrew slaves will be set free. Would you go down to verse uh, 40 and check this out? Verse 40. Uh, let's do 39, actually. That's a better place. If one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, do not make him work as a slave. He's to be treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident among you. He is to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then he as his children are to be released. He will go back to his own clan and to the property of his forefathers because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. They must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. So if times were tough and you had to sell yourself into slavery... God is saying here, the master shouldn't even treat that person like a slave. He's actually like a hired worker. Yes, I know. He sold himself. He belongs to you. But by year 50, he is to be released. Let him go. Okay. And then part C, the land is to go back to its original owner. So again, if economically, you're doing very poorly and you need to pay debts off and provide for your family, you may sell your property to do that. Now, let's go back then. As Israel was entering the promised land, Joshua was dividing up the land between tribes. This tribe gets this area, this tribe gets this area, and that is your property. And even if you became poor, and had to sell your property off, eventually you would get that property back on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee. So that's what Jubilee was about. What does it mean for us? The temptation with this passage and many other passages in the law is we kind of look at, look at Torah, and, we, and, we, and that Torah means law, okay, that, that's the law of God. Um, actually, Torah actually means law and the prophets. It's a whole Old Testament, but very particularly it means the Old Testament law. Now, we're tempted to say we don't do Jubilee, so it doesn't have meaning for us. We're tempted to say about a lot of the laws of the Old Testament, I don't do that. I don't let my beard grow out, 
okay, like, like a Jewish person was commanded to do. There's a lot of things that we don't do that are in there. And so the temptation in our country today is to say, uh, if you don't do some of it, then don't worry about it at all. Don't, don't read it. Don't worry about it. It's not meaningful for us. Now, on the one hand, we're not under the supervision of the law. The Apostle Paul wrote a lot about that in Romans and Galatians. You can read those books and see we're not under the law anymore. But Paul also wrote to Timothy and said, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Is Leviticus the word of God? Yes. So if Leviticus is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness, then all of Torah is useful for us. But how is it useful for us? Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. He's like, I'm not trying to destroy the whole thing. I'm trying to show you what it's really pointing to. This is what it's really about. So it doesn't do for us to say, well, I eat pork, so I don't worry about the law. I I don't have a beard, so I don't worry about the law. Uh, That doesn't do. The point is we read Torah to understand if we know and love Christ as we ought because it's all about him. It's all about him. So, Some people have tried to divide Torah into categories like there's the moral law of God, Ten Commandments is moral law, and you see those things repeated in the New Testament. These are timeless laws. They're always going to be God's moral law, and we follow those. And then there's ceremonial law. There's things the Israelites had to celebrate as their religious duty to God. Year of Jubilee being part of that, ceremonial law. Sacrifices, we don't sacrifice anymore. They were commanded to, we don't do that, ceremonial law. And then there was civil law, right? Like, if you've got, a mil, if you've got mildew in your house, here's how you clean it. You've got to rip that stone out and replace it and do all this and that. You know, there's civil laws. Or, or if you have an infectious skin disease, you're out of the camp. If you come in contact with a dead body, you're out of the camp for a time, you know. So, so this was there to protect the people from infectious diseases, there's no EPA. There, there's no like standards of health and, and all those things. There's no go to the doctor's office, they'll tell you what to do. They've got God. And so God said, here are the laws that's going to keep you healthy. That's pretty smart. I don't want to focus on that in particular this morning, but I think that threefold division is pretty important to understand. When people say, don't worry about Torah because it's old and it's Old Testament, I, I respond in that way. It is important you understand what this means. It is relevant for you. I want to give a different threefold division this morning. When you read an Old Testament law, you ought to ask yourself, what's the practical purpose for this law? Why is it here? Why, why, did, why were they supposed to follow that law? You ought to ask yourself, what's the theological purpose for this law? What does this law teach us about God? Because laws reflect the character of God. They flaw out of who he is. Be holy as I am holy. How do we be holy? We obey his commandments. Why are those commandments? Because they reflect his character. And then you ought to ask yourself, and this is the cool part, because as Christians we get this added feature of the law. What does this law tell us about Jesus? The Christological purpose. So I just want to go through that with you with Jubilee. And if we can understand Jubilee, you can apply this process to anything you read back there. 
and understand it better. Okay, let's do that. Here we go. Uh, practical, we're under number two here. What are the practical reasons for Jubilee? Why was it such a great law for Israel to have? Well, A, it means nobody would be poor forever. No Israelite will be poor forever. I mean, you think about that. You're a woman and your husband dies. Who's providing for you? Things get hard. You have no kinsman redeemer like Ruth to, to, to marry, and Ruth and Boaz to, to marry into the family. So, so if you're really stuck and you've got to sell off your property, life is hard. But you know there's a time coming when that's going to be restored. It's a practical purpose for that. You're not going to be poor forever. Secondly, no Israelite was going to be a slave forever. So if things got so bad that you actually had to sell yourself and your family into slavery, maybe you made some really bad choices in how you spent your wealth, or, or, or maybe it was just what happened, just the way life went. We know that both things happened to us today. It could be just life, things are rough, or it could be I made some stupid decisions, but now you're poor, so poor that you've got to sell yourself and your family into slavery. But it won't be forever. There's an out. Jubilee is coming, and now there's freedom. By the way, um, this version of slavery is not the equivalent of our country's version of slavery. We had a very race-based slavery. We said, you should be slaves and you should not because the color of your skin is such. This was very much, I can't provide for myself and I need to sell myself into slavery to pay off my debts. I mean, that, that's what we're talking about here. Okay, knowing that, there's practical reasons God gave this to his people. So, I mean, I don't know how all the other nations were in this time, but I would think, if you're on the outside looking in, you'd say, this is a wise law. Because it means debt won't crush you forever. It means slavery won't define your life forever. And even if you never make it to year 50, maybe your kids will. And that gives you hope. Because freedom is coming. There's practical reasons for it. Now let's talk about theological reasons. What does this teach us about God? Would you look at verse 23 with me? Uh, here it is. Verse 23. God says, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are aliens and my tenants. Throughout the country that you hold as possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. God says that all of Israel is mine. And, and, and of course, by extension, all the world is his. This teaches us something. He didn't just give year of jubilee only for the people. He gave it to show who he is to the people. God is a God who owns the whole world. He owns the whole world. So maybe you have property up here that you purchased and you spend your weekends up here in the summer. That belongs to God. Maybe you're renting somewhere and you feel bad because you can't buy the house that you're in. That's okay. It belongs to God. Everything, every square inch of this planet belongs to God. Now, I went to a high school where I feel like the culture was we are rulers of the world. We can do what we want with it. Taking care of the environment, ha, you know, who needs that? 
But if you read this and see that we are God's stewards of land that belongs to him, it should cause us to question what are we doing to the environment? How are we taking care of God's creation? Yes, we are rulers in this world. He did give us the authority in Genesis to rule over creation. But never above his authority as the rightful and sole owner of it. We should take care of it. It's his. We used to joke, well, he's going to destroy it all anyway and fire. That's no excuse. Whatever God does with the world is his to do with it. But for now, we are stewards. And the church ought to speak to these issues. Okay, God owns the world. Secondly, we could say, God frees captives. Look at verse 38. Verse 38. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. He says, I want you to know something about me. I want freedom for slaves because I freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. You all know the story of Moses. You know that deal. Let my people go and they left Egypt. Plagues happened on the Egyptians. God was determined to see his people freed because he is a God who frees people. He loves freeing slaves. Maybe we ought to, as we soberly remember the lives lost during the Civil War, also remember that God works for those on the side of freedom. And that even in our country, we have benefited from knowing and seeing God's hand free those that are enslaved. This is what he does. This is a priority to him. He's like slave freer. Now, that's what Israel would know about God from this passage. How does this passage reveal Jesus to us? I love this. Would you go to the book of Luke now? Luke chapter 4. I hope you're still with me. If not, just remember that ram's horn and you'll get all excited again and we'll... I should have had it blown at different parts of the sermon. You know, like, am I losing anybody of you? You know, and then we're all back. We're all back. All right. Luke chapter 4. My Bible, uh, my blue Bible is 727 around that area. So... Okay. Check out verse 16. Watch this. Watch this. Jesus, he went to Nazareth. Now that's his hometown, remember. Nazareth, where he had been brought up. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. Rabbis would stand to read the scripture in honor of it. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written in Isaiah... The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Short scripture reading. Then he rolled up the scroll in verse 20, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Teachers would sit as they taught. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Okay. That passage in Isaiah 
is talking about Jubilee. Do you catch the connections? It's freedom for captives. It's good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. And Jesus says, now this is fulfilled. Now, the people heard this, verse 22, all spoke well of him, were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you, he continued, to tell you the truth, no prophet's accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years. There was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in, in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only name in the Syrian. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, ah, there was a lot of sick people back in the time of Elijah and Elisha. And God was, was caring about the Gentiles, not the Jews. Ooh, you know, that kind of stings. God cares about Gentiles as much as he cares about us, his people, even more so in some cases. Ouch, you know. And then 28, it says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and they drove him out of town. They took him to the brow of a hill at which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming that there was a jubilee happening now. And that he was the fulfillment of it. He was claiming, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he was the Messiah who was going to free the people. And they heard this and thought, wait a minute, we grew up with this guy, right? We, we, we saw him as a little boy. We didn't think anything of him then. And they had a hard time accepting his words because it was his hometown. That gives me a lot of hope, you know, because uh, it means... This is, I imply from this, I infer from this, that uh, Jesus didn't grow up raising the dead as a little boy, you know, and like doing miracles and like going to school and like, uh, I don't know. I often think that Jesus showed up all of his brothers and sisters, but apparently it wasn't that remarkable because they said, he's a normal kid. He's a normal boy. And now he's a man claiming to be Messiah. I can't make that connection. And they rejected him in his hometown. Now, what does this mean about Jesus? Two things. Jesus' Jesus's kingdom is about spiritual freedom. It's about being released from slavery. Okay, so uh, let's do this. All right. Um, We sang this morning, my chains are gone, I've been set free. Eric, this is way too heavy. Why'd you do this to me? All right. <laughs> there we go. Um, my chains are gone, I've been set free. So um, I'm, I'm presuming that that passage means I am free from sin. Jesus says, this is good news for the poor. And in a spiritual sense, we're all poor. None of us can earn our salvation. He says he's coming to give sight to the blind, right? Can we just all admit that we are spiritually blinded without God enlightening us, without shining his light on us, that we would not have come to him 
We would have stayed in our sin if God didn't open our eyes to see how good He was. We were enslaved. Now, our chains were invisible, and yet, I'm guessing, you know a lot of folks who still walk around in slavery to their own sin. That's what the Bible says. It's not, that's not me. If you don't believe in Jesus, the Bible says you're enslaved to sin, not me. So I'm, I'm just telling you that. But if you're free, you ought to look different, right? If I walk around like this all day, this is weighing me down. You're going to be able to see it and hear it and feel it in a very real way. If I take these chains off, and Jesus says, He who the Son sets free is free indeed. If I'm truly free, I will look different. It does us little good to say, I'm just a sinner like everybody else, and I know I'm going to look like everybody else around me. That's who I am. No, no. You're not a sinner. You're a saint. And yes, you still mess up. We all do. If you say you haven't sinned, then you lie, and the truth's not in you. So we all sin. But would you say that your life looks just as enchained as everybody else around you? Or would you say that when people see you at work, at school, in the neighborhoods, that they can see freedom in your life. That they would see something and it would make them feel like their life is not truly free. Would you say that's true of you? That just the way you live is characterized by freedom. That when you sin, you repent and say, I don't want to go back and do that again. Or do you just say, I'm going to deal with this forever, just going to keep doing it. If we don't look different, what do we really have to offer the world? If you say, believe in Jesus, and people say, what does that do for me? I hope that when people see your life, they would see freedom on such a level that they would desire to have what you have. Because the chains, the spiritual chains are real. And we see them in people all around us. And counseling won't fix it. Self-help books won't fix it. Trying harder won't fix it. Finding your life mate, your soul mate won't fix it. Having kids in a family won't fix it. Jesus fixes it. I mean, do you really believe that sinners can be changed? People that drive you crazy because they're so hateful and full of spite and bitterness and whatever else you see coming out of them, do you really believe that if they knew Jesus as their Savior, that those chains would come off. Do you really believe that? Because if you did, you would talk about it. Do you really believe that you can live a life free of sin? If that is true, you ought to be able to see that. Now, there's another element of this, as we're, as we're kind of coming to the conclusion here. Jesus' kingdom also brings physical freedoms. Physical freedoms. Like, when we read this, Jesus says, I'm, I'm proclaiming, I'm anointed to give sight to the blind, to proclaim good news for the poor. And if you look at Jesus' life, did he give sight to the blind? Yes. If you believe the testimony of Scripture, yes, he did. If Jesus gave sight to the blind, then when he read that, he wasn't just talking about spiritual 
bondage and slavery. He was also talking physical. He gave sight to the blind. This is good news for the poor. So here's our question. When it comes to uh, economic policy in this country, when it comes to how we do business with each other, are we people of the book at that point? How do you know what's good economics and what's not good? How do you know what's best for the laws of this land and what's not the best? It's whatever the scripture says is the best for this country. That's your answer. I'm no economic expert. I have friends that love this topic and they talk to me about it and it's usually over my head. But you talk about minimum wage. Should we raise it or should we not? That's a biblical question. And I'm not trying to give you the answer and say this is it, but I'm saying as you use your wisdom and thinking and logic, you compare all that to Scripture. Is that good news for the poor to raise minimum wage? Truly good news for the poor. Not a band-aid, not a whatever. Is it truly good news? Think about it deeply. I'm not giving an answer for you this morning. But I'm saying if we say the laws of the land can go outside of, the, uh, of what Scripture says and we can promote that, then we're saying the Bible doesn't have the ultimate authority in life everywhere. We are people of the book. And let's remain under its authority. Can I speculate for a second here? With, I'm just going to speculate. Would you go to Revelation chapter 11? I believe in preaching with authority because uh, that's what Jesus did. But I also believe that there are things that are beyond my comprehension. There, there are mysteries and things in Scripture that are deeper than I understand, because this is the Word of God. It can be understood, but there's some things that I still want to wrestle with and say, is this what's going on here? Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. This is the seventh trumpet, the last of the trumpets to be blown. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The last trumpet is blown, and the kingdoms of the world are being given over to Jesus for him to reign. Is Jesus reigning today? Yes. His kingdom is an invisible kingdom, and every time someone bows down and says, Jesus, you're my Savior, you're my Lord, they're coming into that kingdom. Jesus reigns today. But there's coming a day when the last trumpet will be blown and Jesus will return visibly. And he will reign visibly. And then that will truly be the best news. Do you think maybe, maybe, that Jubilee is pointing to that day? I don't know, but I can tell you on the Day of Atonement, the day that sins were being sacrificed for in the Old Testament, on that day in particular, on the 50th year, the horn was blown. People were declared free. And we look around today, 
And you and I know that there's an element of freedom that we all enjoy as Christians. And there's an element of freedom from physical things as well that we can enjoy as Christians. But the ultimate fulfillment of that, hey, if you're blind, there's a day coming when you're going to get to see. And I'm guessing the first thing you're going to see is Jesus. That'll be quite a sight. And there's a day coming when whatever physical ailment you have, if God does not release that from you in this life, there's a day coming when you will be released. And all of that comes with the blow of a trumpet. Freedom. I'll say thank you again to you that have served this country in the cause of freedom. God is into the cause of freedom. And then I'll take you back to Isaiah, and this is the end. My time is short. Go to Isaiah 61. This is the last one. I think I promise, okay? (laughs) Isaiah 61. This is the passage that Jesus quoted. This is what I'm going to leave you with, all right? Isaiah 61. Page 529 in some of your Bibles. I know we have two different kinds there. 529. If you're looking for it, it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. If you hit Daniel, start backing up. And uh, Psalms is kind of the middle, so you're going forward from there. Okay, Isaiah 61. This is what Jesus read in Nazareth that day 2,000 years ago. Here's what he read. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. By the way, do you see the Trinity there real quick? Do you see it? Trinity? The Spirit of God, the Sovereign Lord. So there's a Sovereign Lord, there's His Spirit, and the Spirit is upon Jesus. Three. Just, Just point it out. There it is. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from, darkness, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. But he didn't read that, did he? He stopped right after proclaim the year of the Lord's, the year of Yahweh's favor. He did not read the day of vengeance of our God because that day is still coming. And he wouldn't have been truthful if he said that on that day in Nazareth because he came to die for the sins of poor and broken people like you and me. But there is a day coming when he comes in vengeance to judge the world. And all those that have not bowed to his lordship will stand in his judgment. Let me ask you this. Have you ever come to the point in your life when you have bowed your heart before Jesus and said, Jesus, you paid for my sins on the cross. Please forgive me. You're my king. Have you ever, have you ever done that? Have you ever had that conversation with Jesus where you've given your life to him? If you haven't, I'd love to give you opportunity to now. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you heard Jesus' words this morning, hopefully not Pastor Niles, but if you heard Jesus' words this morning, I invite you, if God is knocking on the door of your heart, to respond in faith.
That's all. Just respond in faith and believe it. If you'd like to pray a prayer with me to put words to that faith that you're feeling right now and experiencing right now, would you look up at me and we will pray together if that's you and you want to pray together? All right. Others? Others? Okay. Yes. All right. Would you folks pray with me? Understanding that if it's not by faith, I mean, if this is not a real deal, saying words into the air is not going to happen. It's not going to help. But if you believe there is a God and he gave his son Jesus Christ to die for your sins, this moment is yours. Let's pray. Jesus, I believe you came to proclaim freedom for the captives, of which I am one of those captives. I've been enslaved to sin for far too long. Enslaved to bad choices and habits, things that I've done on purpose and things that I've done accidentally. Good things that I should have done, but I didn't do. Would you forgive me? Would you now give me freedom from those things? Jesus, I know I'll I'll mess up again but I thank you that it's covered now by the cross, that you paid for the punishment I deserve. And now help me follow you all the days of my life. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. Jesus, I pray this in your name. Amen. I know that some of you that are visiting this morning, I might not see you again, <laughs> all right? Maybe I'll see you next year, maybe later this summer. Uh, if I can be of a help to you, please call the office. I'd love, I could talk to you. We can, we can chat about the first steps in following Christ.